You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Hi, and welcome to episode 309 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer, PhD in English, but I don't do anything related to academia. Uh, joining me today is David Grubbs, who does do something with academia. He is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. How's it going, David? I'm pretty well. Glad to be back Just... for another semester. Yeah, yeah, actually. Uh, it's... Um... One of the reasons why I've I enjoy that life is 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 its rhythms, and uh, start the start of a new semester for whatever reason always makes me feel optimistic and hopeful, no matter how much I feel like a wrung out rag at the end of the previous semester. It's true, yeah. It's a fresh sheet of paper or an unopened package of cigarettes. But by, by mid-May, you'll just be the empty package with the little bits of tobacco left clinging to it. See, I was thinking of bag fries, but... That works, know. too. <laughs> well, uh, also joining us is our replacement for Nathan Gilmore this semester, uh, Matthew Block, who um, our listeners, longtime listeners, will have heard his name before. Because he used to write into the show back when we read listener email out loud because we got uh, so little of it. Although now we get little of it again, so maybe <laughs> we should start reading it again. I don't know. Anyway, um, Matthew, why don't you introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are besides a dedicated listener to this podcast? Sure. Uh, I'm Matthew Block, and I'm the editor of the Canadian Lutheran Magazine. Um I formerly served Lutheran Church Canada as its national communications manager, although I stopped doing that a few years ago and I've taken on that role for our global church organization, which is the International Lutheran Council. And uh, I've been listening to the podcast, I think, since its second year, um, so for a while now. Well, we're so glad to have you this semester and I uh, hope you'll have a good time and that our listeners will enjoy hearing you as well. Thanks. I have written here to say what's new on the network, but unfortunately no one has been filling in the Google calendar for what goes on the network. <laughs> so how do I know? Uh, I do know that there was recently a new Christian feminist podcast on the Enneagram. Uh, yes. And the, the second season of, or the, excuse me, I'm way off my game today. The fourth series of the of the core curriculum will have concluded last week, and we have begun to schedule and record the fifth season on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics and Politics. So, if you've enjoyed um, if you've enjoyed the core curriculum, hopefully you won't have to wait too long for the next season, although it is 14 episodes on a rather esoteric topic, so it might take us some time to get it all recorded. Do you have a sense of when Before They Were Live might return? Uh, well, we we had an episode this month, the first Thursday of this month, on, um, mm -hmm. oh gosh, what was it on? Tarzan. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, there'll be one on the first Thursday of February on DuckTales the movie, The Treasure of the Lost Lamp. Oh, man. I'm very excited. That movie was very important to me as a child. I'm kind of nervous to return to it. I showed yeah. that to my kids last summer, I think. So How did it hold up? <laughs> well, I liked it, but I had never seen it before. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and, then and, and they're... And they're big in Italy, right? They're big in Scandinavia, is my understanding. Oh, okay. The, the, okay. the DuckTales characters are very popular there. Uh, there's a... A Christmas special that aired called From All of Us to All of You that features a Donald Duck short in it. And my understanding is in Sweden, everybody in the country watches that on Christmas Eve. Wow. Yeah. It's there. It's a wonderful life. I, I, I guess it is. So, uh, yeah, maybe maybe it's very European of me to love DuckTales Treasure to the Lost Lamp. 
<laughs> the other thing I can say for sure is that last week, uh, on the, the 18th, January 18th, there was a new episode of City of Man wherein Coyle talks to uh, Hunter Baker, who wrote a essay saying that the never-Trumpers were right and that he was wrong uh, to to support Trump after the Capitol insurrection. And I just listened to that episode before we recorded, and it, it's quite good. And, uh, and Coyle pushes him in some, I think, very productive uh, ways about that essay he wrote. So I do recommend that episode if you haven't already listened to it. Cool. Well, our episode today is on Shirley Jackson's 1947, I think, short story, Afternoon in Lenin. Now, our uh, our listeners are probably familiar with at least one thing that she wrote. Uh, her short story, The Lottery, which is, I still, I believe, responsible for more angry letters than anything else The New Yorker has ever published. Um, and I used to know how many letters they got, but it was thousands and thousands of letters uh, from people who were angry about them printing The Lottery, which is now, of course, a canonical short story that's taught in many freshman comp classes. Uh, all that aside, though, David, who was Shirley Jackson, um, besides the author of The Lottery? Well, she was uh, a prolific writer of especially short stories, but also um, some uh, autobiographical or semi-autobiographical nonfiction, uh, as well as uh, some very successful novels, um, including one that Stephen King has called uh, the the best ghost story um either the best ghost story ever written or the best ghost story of the 20th century can't remember which either way that's an achievement uh she uh was married to stanley hyman who uh maybe you'll need to tell me something about him uh he was a literary critic in the middle of the 20th century and you know more about that sort of thing than I do, so maybe you have some insights there. I don't. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I mostly anyway. know him as her husband. Okay. Well, he was also writing for the New Yorker on the on the society or on the on the sort of culture and arts beat. Um. So, uh, the lottery. We know that one. Um, the haunting of Hill House. Uh, I know that though. Uh, we had a little conversation before. Uh, we started recording, dear listener, about my inability to uh, distinguish between uh, the haunting of Hill House, the house on a haunted hill, the haunting of Hell House, and the two haunting movies. So, yeah. Um, some of those are related, but not all. Uh, she's known uh, especially she's she's kind of had a, had a reputation as a horror writer, I think largely due to Hill House um and uh, haunting of hill house and then the lottery kind of plays into that too but a lot of her other work is apparently much less clearly um clearly horror related um maybe call it more gothic maybe more sardonic um maybe darker themed even edging into dark comedy uh she was enormously financially successful um well, not in order. I, she was financially successful, especially compared to her husband, who still insisted on managing the finances and gave her an allowance. Uh, she died when she was 48 from heart problems, um, exacerbated by uh, prescription, uh, the medicine medications that she was on, um, which now we know have problems. Um, so, uh, yeah, she. Uh, interesting you know she's she's one of those writers that that you wonder how much more could she have accomplished um had the medicine of her day um been better so yeah uh a very very interesting figure um uh, a a public figure um being uh, frequently featured in the new yorker um and maybe maybe some talk about the status of that um might be might be useful. Um, anything else you'd want to add? Matthew, do you have anything to say about Shirley Jackson? I can't say too much more about her. Um, I actually have very little exposure to her. Um, unlike most people, I, I never seem to have read the lottery in school as a kid. My wife did, so it wasn't just Canadians don't read her. 
But uh, to to my knowledge, the only story I ever read by her prior to this week was My Dear Alphonse, or After You, My Dear Alphonse, I think it's called. And uh, it's it's not a horror story. <laughs> but um, yeah, obviously in the last week or so I've read The Lottery, um, this particular one we're discussing, and a few of her other stories, just to get a, a feel for her a little bit better. My last semester teaching... I, I, I decided to do this thing where on the, the first day of, uh, of Intro to Literature, the second freshman writing course, I would just use the second half of the period to read to the students out loud because, I you know, a lot of students go into that class and they think they don't like to read. But in fact, everybody, when they're a kid, enjoys having somebody read to them. So why not do it to a bunch of adults as well? And I, uh, the lottery was the story I picked. And I was interested by the fact that very few of them seem to have known the story going in. And, and in fact, I know this because they were absolutely horrified by it, as everybody is the first time they hear it uh, or read it. Um, but it, it really um, it really stuck with them, I think. And uh, uh, th- that story is uh, uh, popular for a reason. Let me put it that way. Um, have either of you seen the recent biopic of Shirley Jackson called I think it's just called Shirley, and it stars Elizabeth Moss as Jackson. No. No, me neither. Yeah, we we watched about 15 minutes of it. It's on Hulu, um, and hated it so much we turned it off. So I don't know, I don't know if it gets better after the first 15 minutes. But I felt like the Moss performance in particular was just a series of nervous ticks rather than uh, an, an attempt to actually show us who this woman was. But I think. Part of the reason that it was just a series of nervous tics is that Jackson was well known at the time for having this kind of nervous disorder is probably what they would have called it in the 1940s and 50s. And it was kind of exacerbated by her husband, um, by some of the things that David was saying about her. He treated her um, he treated her as a child in a lot of ways, and that made her act more like a child in some ways. She was a troubled woman um, in a troubled marriage and... Uh, it it comes out in some of the stories, you know. You the, the lottery is not the work of a will person, um, and and we've avoided saying anything about what that story is, and I guess we'll continue to avoid it, in, just in case our listeners haven't uh, haven't encountered that story. But if if they haven't, they should definitely go read it because it's a, it's a pretty terrific story and widely anthologized, available I'm sure for free online. Well, as David was saying, um, Jackson is usually considered a writer of horror fiction. Uh, Afternoon in Linen is not really a horror story. It's more of a slice-of-life, mid-century New Yorker sketch. It fits in very well um, with the other stories that were being published in the New Yorker in the late 40s. Uh, But is there a sense in which it's a horror story? How does Jackson use her predilection for horror fiction in Afternoon in Linen? I think it's important first off to note that um, the story is written in 1943, and that's actually a little bit early in, in Jackson's writing career, before she's really, really well known, I think, for writing horror, at least from what I gather in my reading. Um, but I do think that Afternoon in Linen does play with some of the themes that show up in her later horror fiction. Uh, I think it's helpful here maybe to distinguish the concepts of horror and terror which is a distinction we get from the early gothic writer Anne Radcliffe horror from Radcliffe's perspective was this disgust or or revulsion that we experience when we're when we're confronted with something unambiguously monstrous or terrible Um, and we wouldn't really say that this story fits into that kind of concept of horror but Radcliffe also said that the there's something called terror, and terror is where we have this growing anxiety, this fearfulness of what might or, or will happen. Um, there's an open-endedness to the concept of terror that allows it to keep growing in intensity. And I think that it's this kind of terror, what we might think of in terms of psychological horror today, that we really see elements of in Afternoon in Linen. So there's no boogeyman lurking in the shadows. It's not a dark and lonely night with ghosts flying around. All the horror in this story is taking place in a sitting room while two ladies enjoy a formal tea and, and have their their uh, children uh, perform. And I think it's that, that concept of, of forcing this 10-year-old girl to perform, especially to perform in front of one of the other kids from her neighborhood, that really 
builds up this sense of of anxiety and and in that sense a sense of terror. Um, but Harriet is is really kind of afraid of the judgment she's going to get from her peer Howard, uh, and more than that, she's afraid of the of the um, consequences of him telling all the kids on the block uh, what she does. Because his, um, just to make it clear for listeners, uh, in this story, the, the little girl Harriet is told by her grandmother to perform first some piano, and when she's unwilling to do that, to to pre- recite her own personal poetry in front of her friend. And it's that anxiety of being made to reveal her private creative work before a judgmental audience um, that really creates a rising tension in the room until eventually uh, the child kind of disavows the work entirely, says she didn't write it at all, that she copied it out of a book, and then uh, even so still um, grabs the poems away from her grandmother, hides them behind her back. And there's a line here where it says that uh, Harriet hid the poetry in back of her away from everyone. And it gives the impression uh, that they're all crowding around her. And even if that's not true, literally, it's the impression we get that Harriet is experiencing, that she's being crowded around, people trying to get to her, trying to get at this deeply private, deeply personal part of her. And I think even that sense of of forces kind of converging against her, we even get a little bit of it in the poetry that her grandmother does read aloud, the line about the dark gathering closely around, this lonesome darkness. Um, I think that these words kind of reflect the isolation and the shame that Harriet feels in the sitting room as her grandmother Howard and Howard's mother pay this unwanted attention to her. So there's elements of horror and of tension and of terror in that sense, but it's not going to, listeners shouldn't pick up the story expecting it to be a ghost story. That's not what this is. Is there anything else you would add, Michael? Well, David, what would you say about that? I immediately uh, locked in on at least uh, not necessarily all of your analysis of this of this Matthew. I really appreciate bringing in Ma- and Radcliffe there. That's that that was some some bits that I'd forgotten. Um, but as a child, I was deeply anxious about performing mm-hmm. publicly in any way, and so as soon as I'm reading this, I'm feeling. Um, a a throat constricting but also uh also there was some 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 humor to it because this little girl is so self-conscious about you know being aware the of the way that this situation is shaping up right she she knows what's coming down the pike any minute now (laughs) and she has a plan you know and her plan is just sort of the you know the bartleby gambit she'd prefer not um but but her grandmother doesn't relent when she says no to the music. Um, instead, her grandmother escalates, and that's when um, in, in, instead of having successfully fended off um, the exposure that she feared, the exposure of music, uh, instead there is a threat of an even more intimate exposure. Um, that of her her own her own creative work, um, even to the point where she's you know kind of Judas like denying it, um, and and she she would rather be thought a liar and a plagiarist than a poet, uh, and there's there's something that there's something in that that you you kind of have to remember that childhood anxiety in order to understand. So much of horror, it seems to me, is about helplessness, like a, a perceived or real helplessness. And, and that's what the story's about, too, right? It's, it's about this girl who feels trapped into doing this thing she doesn't want to do. And in a horror story, the thing you don't want to do is get eaten by the monster or whatever, getting hacked up by the by the serial killer. Here, it's it's something so much more mundane. And yet the the feeling of, of terror, as, as Matthew said is uh is still very present and i'm looking in this book i've got to see if i can find the quote but i apparently i can't there's a there's a 
Joyce Carol Oates' line about John Updike, where she says that he he writes tragedies that fail to achieve the grandeur of tragedies and thus unaccountably become comedies. And I think <laughs> I think that's what's happening here as well. It's yeah. it's too small to really be a horror story, and so what it becomes instead is a comic story. So let's let's talk about that other obvious mode of afternoon and linen. I think this is laugh out loud. In some places, um, David, do you agree with me? What techniques does she use to make the reader laugh at afternoon in linen? Well, she starts off with this description of everyone wearing linen, uh, which is which I, I thought a, a little bit humorous in itself. Um, I'm not entirely certain of what the the social significance of everyone wearing linen happens to be. Um, but given that one of the women is actually named Mrs. Lennon, um, is, is, you know, kind of layer that struck me as funny as well. Um, the, uh, the humor in it, I, I think especially comes, comes through, um, through Howard. I, I find Howard very funny. Um, because he's he simultaneously seems to be performing docilely for the grown-ups um but he's also very much of this other world of the children on the block that has nothing to do with the way that you know grown-ups count coup socially um you know he and he and so he represents for uh for Harriet this this other side of her life that she actually values the good opinion of much more. Um, he, uh, and, and so when, when the poems are brought out, uh, when the, the, you know, the, the mention of poetry and how, oh, where's the, where's the line Howard, uh, the huge, huge merriment had been gradually taking hold of Howard suddenly overwhelmed him. Poems. He said, doubling over with laughter on the couch. Harriet writes poems. He'll tell all the kids on the block the little girl thought. <laughs> well, and then and later then, he says, Harriet writes poems about stars. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's, he's the devil, uh, and I also kind of love him. Because um, it's just, there's there's something very real and very funny about that to me. Um you know that he 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 has been sort of accepting the humiliation of playing whatever this piece is um in front of the adults as the little girl is also sitting there saying i played that last year like you know for, in, in her mind she she's winning because she knows she's already done she's achieved that feat <laughs> right he's she inferior to him. her yes he's she's you know, older even if he's bigger Yes. And so she she's feeling kind of smug and he's probably feeling a bit of that smugness and then the tables turn. Um anyway, there, there there's a lot of little moments like this in uh especially not not so much um lower grade fiction, but in uh, middle grade fiction, you'll see moments like this of of social anxiety of of uh sort of re reversals like this that are played for laughs um and i think it, it, it it's because there is in that in that point in childhood um enough kind of self-awareness that uh the possibilities of that kind of humor develop um so i i don't know if y'all have ever read them but there, there was um a series of books uh, called the great brain. I can't even remember the, the, the name of the, uh, the writer of those, but they're all, you know, it's a family of, of little Catholic boys who were being raised in Salt Lake city in the late 1800s. And a whole lot of the situations revolved around childhood embarrassment and then revol reversal of embarrassment where the kid who's embarrassing the other kids gets embarrassed before the other kids. And so that that mode of humor is is something that uh, I, I feel like I've I've 
I've encountered for a very long time. And um, it helped me as a kid to de- to deal with those kinds of moments, to, to think about the possibility that maybe this will be funny later. <laughs> which, which it is, right? I mean, your childhood humiliations are largely no longer humiliating when you're an adult. I grew up in a family of storytellers, and my uncles would routinely turn their stories of childhood humiliation into um, just incredible performances of comedy. And so uh, I, I think I knew very early on um, the the possibility <laughs> that one day, one day this will be fuel. One day I will get to be the funny uncle, and this will be funny, but it doesn't feel funny now. Right. Right. So even even with a double vision that she doesn't have, it was mm-hmm. still it was still painful, but yeah. But we're we're inside her consciousness and yet not inside our her consciousness, so we're able to laugh at her. And then we also mm-hmm. laugh at the buffoonery of the grandmother who is, you know, so um so clearly trying to use um Harriet to score social points with this woman with mrs lennon oh yeah right so there's there's some humor there as well Mm-hmm. well the, both the children have h names uh but it's a boy and a girl and you have a mother and a grandmother and so there's there's enough kind of parallel and enough difference that you can sense the way in which you know this can get you know it, it's immediately competitive in a certain kind of way and that's pretty funny. <laughs> Dance, little monkeys. Were you guys made to do that when you were kids? Were you made to perform for adults? I don't think I was made to perform for adults in a in a home setting kind of a thing. No, I, I'm sure I performed at events, but that was kind of a different thing. Right. Yeah. I don't ever remember having been put on the spot like this. I, I I'm pretty sure I was made to play the piano for uh, for my family members, and I mean, there's something there's something very um, frightening about that. That again, that that horror turns to comedy once you get a little bit of distance from it. Matthew, what do you think? Is mm-hmm. the did you find the story funny? Yeah, I. I, I found quite a bit of it amusing it's pretty clear that if the story was focused on howard rather than harriet it would be a, a comedy rather than this kind of tension building story that it is to some extent because of course howard is embarrassed the story begins with his embarrassment where he's playing and he's playing a, a humoresque which is i mean the word humor is in there and it might at least twig for English readers to look for something funny in the story. Mm-hmm. But he's he's playing this humoresque, which should be a, a reasonably light kind of uh, piano piece that you play in a fun or jaunty manner. But he's playing it in this even, slow way. And then he's gravely <laughs> sitting down. It's it just it's funny the way it's not at all the way it should be performed. But uh, yeah, so I, I think there's some some good humor in here. Uh, that uh, you just need to not take it quite so seriously always as Harriet does in the middle of things. Well, um, the lottery is generally taken as a mid-century parable about conformity, and I I think that theme is definitely present here in Afternoon and Lennon as well, although it's combined with some sort of implicit theory about the life of the capital A artist. I don't know. Um, what is Jackson saying about her own work here, Matthew? Yeah, I mean, uh, first off, I guess, addressing kind of the topic of conformity in the story. I mean, it's I think it's presented in a couple of different ways. There's the expectation for Harriet to conform to the expectation of other kids um, or else face ridicule. So the artist, in other words, is treated as other because they break from the norm. And Harriet doesn't want to be treated uh, in this kind of way. She doesn't want to be bullied. She doesn't want to be made fun of. So she pretends that she's following the expectation even when she doesn't. She doesn't write poetry. Of course, she doesn't write poetry. What kid would write poetry? I mean, you get this kind of defensiveness here. But at the same time, the, there's the competing expectation of conformity 
uh, from the grandmother, namely the cultural expectation of 1940s America that a child is going to do what they're what the adult tells them to do, especially in a social situation like this kind of formal tea setting. Um, so we, with Howard and and uh, Harriet, we see kind of the the choice to follow the competing uh, norms of of conformity. Howard follows the social expectation of the parents, and Harriet follows the expectation of the children, because she has more to lose, I think, or or she feels she has more to lose by having to perform her private poetry for this deeply critical audience. I mean, Howard's laughing at the idea of her writing poetry long before they ever read any of it. Um, so it's not it's not something that's going to put the artist at ease to have this kind of critical audience and being forced to perform for them anyhow. And I think also it, it's not helpful how the grown-ups condescend to the artist here, or at least this would make... Uh, Harriet all the more anxious and, and nervous about it. When they finally read the story, Howard's mother calls it pretty and her grandmother chides her for being worried over such a little thing. It's hard for the artist uh, to to want to perform in this kind of situation when she knows she's going to be either made fun of by her peers or or treated as a child. And she doesn't want to be treated as a child. This is a, a serious outlet for her um, personally. Not knowing Jackson very well myself, drawing, I'm hesitant to draw, you know, clear uh, parallels here between Harriet and, and what uh, Jackson thought of her own work. Would you say, Michael, that Jackson doesn't want to be made to perform for a critical audience or that she doesn't want to have to conform uh, to some of the expectations on her as a woman in, in 1940s America? And are these some of the things that are maybe um, at play here? Well, I think they, I think they must be. Although, she, I mean, she sends this to the New Yorker, right? It's not like they have to drag it out of her. And, and she was apparently very happy to have it in, in the New Yorker, which was, you know, a, was and is still a, a really important outlet for contemporary fiction. And she actually, this is one of four stories I just saw that she published that year in the New Yorker. So, I mean, this was a breakthrough for her and she must have felt like a breakthrough, but there, there's something about the, the tension between being rejected out of hand, which is what she's afraid Howard and the other kids are going to do to her and being accepted, but misunderstood. Like, like there's something worse about having people praise you and completely misunderstand what you're doing than just rejecting you outright. And I, I think that that must be a fear that lots of artists who are performing for a public uh, which I guess is almost all artists, it must be something a lot of them feel, and the story is kind of built on. Hmm. What do you think, David? Just the little bit of digging into her biography um, that I did. She, in college, she worked, uh, she was a journalist, and she worked in the school's literary magazine, um, and actually, uh, you know, published fiction in that literary magazine. So thinking of herself, um, uh, as, uh, as a young writer, typically that's, that's a move that's made by someone who, before they got to college, thought of themselves in a writerly way, thought of themselves in a, in a literary way. Um, and we do have that anecdote from, uh, later on about the reception of the lottery that, uh, if I remember, if, if remember, remembering the story rightly, her own parents um, chastised her for not writing a, a nicer, more cheerful story that they could tell their friends about. <laughs> and, well, and what's funny, the New Yorker is kind of between eras in, in the 1940s where, I mean, when it started, it was basically just a humor magazine. And in mm -hmm. the 50s, it becomes a really respectable publication but you know in between is a transitional period so you can understand how there were probably lots of people who subscribed to the new yorker to get these kind of cutesy little stories and they open it up one day and they, <laughs> they see the lottery which is this incredibly <laughs> bleak um bleak story about middle america so yeah yeah <laughs> a middle america that that uh i hope to god never existed <laughs> right, right, right. 
Right. And our, our, again, our listeners who have read the lottery will know what we're talking about. And those who don't should really go look up the lottery so that they can uh, they can enjoy it as well. But you get in in Afternoon in Linen, you get something that looks more like the earlier New Yorker, the kind of slice of life, comedic, light, light story. Um, mm-hmm. But I think underneath it is this move toward that that later um well, what we'll see with her with with a story like the lottery um mm-hmm. it's just that it's that is a that is a theme in this story that is that is much quieter than it will be later uh, mm-hmm. that's so funny that her own parents wanted her to write something nice it, it reminds me of all the kind of respectable Catholics who got so mad at Flannery O'Connor for writing the stories she wrote. Like imagine, imagine yes. thinking Flannery O'Connor or Shirley Jackson could produce the kind of story you're asking them to produce. I mean, it's funny to us because we, <laughs> we recognize it. Like right. they wouldn't have been good at that. And, and if they had been, nobody would remember them today because those stories are, are kind of designed to be kept in your bathroom for a week until the until the magazine changes out you know what i mean well if you're classifying your offspring's creativity as um in the same category as you know making a nine-year-old boy sit down and plunk out humor-esque whatever that is um if 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 that's the sort of thing if that's the function of your child's creativity is these you know plays of um plays of competitive uh, parenting in that respectable tea room, um, it, then you know the lottery is not really useful for that. <laughs> 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 you know, um, so uh, I, I, I find I find it uh, I find it interesting that you know it, you know she 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 fears his laughter, but. Um, resents the prying of the adults who simply want her to show off what seems to be, you know, so far as we can tell, something that's very deeply, deeply personal and important. Um, but it's so important in a particular kind of way that she'll disavow all knowledge. Like it's it's more important than it be secret than it be seen as hers. Um, it is a pretty lousy poem, though. <laughs> She's ten, right? Come right. On. It's better than anything I would have written at ten. But you it's know, she had rhyming. this opportunity, Jackson did, to show us that this child is a prodigy. And she's not, right? Uh-huh. Like the the poem is fine. It's exactly the sort of um, it's exactly the sort of doggerel that you would expect respectable middle class people to enjoy when their children produce. But there's nothing particularly special about it. And yet, as you say, there is something special, which is that she wrote it and um, and it's it's easily abused. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, on, on one hand, she's she's willing to saw that, you know, she's like a a raccoon in a trap that'll chew its leg off to get out. You know, she will chew off that poem and say, nope, plagiarized not a poet in order to conceal the fact that she's got poetry in her. Yeah. By the way, it does, it it does not seem to have been a plagiarized poem. I mean, maybe Jackson got it from somewhere and I just can't find it. But as far as I can tell, that poem was written for this, uh, for this story. Mm -hmm. Although it's so generic that, you know, Lord knows there's probably a million poems that do the same thing from the golden age of bourgeois poetry. Now, was the New Yorker by this point um, the sort of place that the, the 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 venue that it became where part of it part part of the way that the humor works is that it is that it pokes fun at the convention that it that it's a um, part part of the venue is uh, in, in in you know playing up to an audience who likes to think of themselves as smarter than the conventions. Yes. And it was always that, 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 okay. <laughs> that was pre- In fact, I would say that is probably less true now than it was in the first five decades of the magazine. Okay. So like that in itself seems to be 
a kind of a kind of convention as well. Um, you know, uh, so but but at, at maybe this is maybe this is too early in New Yorkerdom for this to be seen as a parody of New Yorkerdom. No, well, I mean the New Yorker's twenty, almost twenty years old in nineteen forty three. It's eighteen years old. So I mean, you you know, lots of <laughs> lots have happened. They they had a reputation. Okay. I think okay. this is almost a perfect mid-century New Yorker story. Like I I think the thing mm-hmm. the New Yorker did at that era is done to perfection in Afternoon and Lennon. Mhm. Like yeah. I I I would not want my my earnest art to be laid before the New Yorker's eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, they paid really well, so maybe you would. Uh, that's fair. <laughs> well this is a short story a very short story and we've already dragged quite a bit out of it but what haven't we talked about that you'd like our listeners to think about as they read afternoon and lennon hmm oh uh, we we've talked about her uh Har- harriet's uh denial of the poem but part of her denial of the poem is to is to turn herself into um in into a liar to say that no i copied it from a book and i gave it to my old grandmother and i said that i wrote it um and she and so it's not just you know, kind of flippant denials. She's doubling down. I did it. I copied out of a book. I copied out of this book. Um, I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. And the whole time what she's doing is making her grandmother systematically lose the engagement. <laughs> so, you know, it, we, we, we talked about how funny this story is. If you look at it from the perspective of Harold, you know, who, when the, when the prospect of, of, of Harriet's poetry comes out, it's like, it's like the sun breaking through the clouds, um, from the perspective of the grandmother who had been so proud of her, you know, of her, you know, her, her, her granddaughter, you know, and now her granddaughter is, is a liar, a plagiarist, a liar who lied to her and will publicly confess it. And and so we, what we have is a, a spectacle of public confession instead of public performance. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not entirely certain all that I all all that can be done with that yet. But uh, the thing that the thing that Harriet undertakes in order to avoid being seen as a poet in public is, uh, I don't know. It, it makes me think of things like the scarlet letter or you know that 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 public shame but it's a public shame that she accepts in order to avoid something that she sees as worse well you know the thing is though there's no way this stops howard from telling everybody that she wrote a poem about stars (laughs) oh no (laughs) first chance he gets she's gonna be star girl for the rest of her life but there is something interesting near the end of the story where Howard's um, response to the situation changes. Because once Harriet starts to stop stonewalling but actively say this is not her work, it says one of the lines is that Harriet was staring at her in admiration. And I think that's an interesting line and worth thinking about. Why is Howard suddenly admiring her? Is it because he thinks... Uh, she really did copy it out of a book and she pulled one over her grandma or is Mm. he staring at her in admiration because she's just being incredibly defiant to the situation and refusing to perform I Mm. I think there's some interesting things to be teased out of that this story definitely understands that children are frequently little monsters (laughs) (laughs) says the childless person (laughs) Well, you know, I spent a good chunk of my morning dealing with the monstrous side of various of my offspring. Of your many so, children? Uh, yeah, we had a 
a couch coloring on uh, incident, and you know, it, it, yeah, it's, it's it's been it's been lit, as the kids say, <laughs> ten years ago, yeah. as they said ten years ago. As they said before, you had children when you still paid attention to how young people spoke. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Matthew, what would you what would you add? What, what, do you, what do you want our listeners to think about um, with this story? Well, I kind of brought up one of them. Why does Howard stare at her in admiration at the end? Um, but I'd also draw people's attention to the the line where Howard's mother is talking about how children are just this way. They're little monsters, is, is what you were saying. But she says, oh, they want attention and praise. That's what kids want. But of course, that's the complete opposite right. of what Harriet has been doing this whole story. She's trying to get out of everyone's attention. And... Uh, and last, uh, we've we've touched on it already, but really comparing Howard and Harriet's um, response to the situation of being forced to perform, and comparing his growing merriment with her growing tension and anxiety. I just think it's it's fun to compare and contrast it. Well, let's end uh, with Nathan Gilmore's favorite, the wine and cheese pairing. Um, if you were teaching Afternoon in Linden, and I understand that only one of us is a teacher, but uh, we'll use our imagination. If you were teaching Afternoon in Linden, what other cultural artifacts would you position around it? And uh, we can start with you, Matthew, and then you pass it to Grubbs. Yeah, I mean, I probably would, right off the bat, let someone or let the class listen to a humoresque, probably Leopold Mozart's grade one piece, which is, according to my wife, uh, a common performance piece for novice pianists, and I think it's probably the one that's mm-hmm. being referenced in this piece. Again, you should, ironically, if you look online, the only people who are recording it are little children playing it, and they play it just like Howard does here with the slow and... <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, I might also, just kind of as a an off thing, I might bring out, you know, ration stamps or ration books, because this story is published right in the middle of... Uh, the period, the beginning of rationing, I think it's a year or two in at this point in World War II. And the significance of having guests over for a formal tea in this kind of situation, because we get the impression that uh, Harriet's grandmother and Howard's mother, they visit all the time, it says. But this was different. So I think the expectation of the the way in which the children were to act in this kind of situation was very different than just everyday life. And that makes, I think, Harriet's um, act actions quite notable. She's going to face some major consequences, I would imagine. And finally, I might um, ask them to read another one of Jackson's horror stories to see kind of the parallels here with some of her more overt horror writing. But we've already touched on that. How about you, Grubbs? I was thinking of... P.G. Wodehouse throughout this. Sure. Uh, especially his his Bertie Wooster stories, but not just Bertie, um, who is basically Harold, but in a grown man's body, uh, who who is constantly being put on the spot by um, his uh, older female relatives, uh, who who stick him in situations where he is demanded, he's expected to perform and, uh, he's constantly trying to get out of it. There are also several, uh, Woodhouse stories involving literal little boys, uh, who, who have the same kind of perform anxiety of performance of being forced to perform, um, and refusing. Um, uh, so, so the, those those humorous uh, tropes um, that I, I think that would be that would be a pairing just to say uh, Woodhouse was writing um, stories with this humorous situations like this uh, uh, for decades before Jackson wrote this story. Uh, um, what is Afternoon and Linen doing? That's more than just. Um, Wodehouse fun, uh, and I think it is doing something more than Wodehouse. Uh, you know, not that not that Wodehouse is bad, just that Wodehouse doesn't have the same kind of goals. I think that I think there's an edge in this particular little story that you don't find uh, in a Wodehouse story. So that's one. Um, 
and I feel like there there might be something in that linen thing, but I don't know what it is. Um, I, I think it would be interesting maybe just to look for look for pictures of of people taking tea in their finery and um, just to kind of uh, create in the minds of of uh, those who are about to read or discuss uh, this poem what the social situation looks like. Um, yeah, those are the sorts of things I'd pitch. I think I would put it next to Flannery O'Connor's Good Country People, which is an even more cracked and acidic comedy of manners than this is, and and could kind of give you a clue as to what Harriet might be like when she's older. <laughs> I think Joy Holger, <laughs> Joy Holger might be Harriet plus uh, plus twenty five years and and uh, some living. <laughs> But then the attitude um, that the author takes to those two characters, you know, Jackson's attitude toward Harriet is so much um, warmer than O'Connor's toward Joy Holga, even though I think both of them are probably self-portraits to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to us talk about this lesser-known Shirley Jackson uh, story. Um, you should be able to find it online, and if you can, um, you should read it, because it's good, and it won't take you long to read anyway. It's... Um, it's all of three and a half pages in her collected stories. Um, I, I, it's also, if you subscribe to The New Yorker, you can obviously get the story from The New Yorker website uh, with vintage advertisements from 1943. I hope you guys appreciated those. Very charming. There's one about like making sure the soles of your shoes are flat because that means they're better shoes. I don't really understand that, but uh, what are you going to do? Uh, what are we talking about next week, David? Next week, we're going to be um, doing something that uh, we've done periodically and I like to do, especially at the beginning of, of a semester or the beginning of a year, uh, to sort of reorient what's, what is this project about, what is it for. But in particular, I've been thinking about what does it mean for me, for us, uh, as, as a podcast, as a network, and for me... Uh, what does it mean to be practicing or pursuing Christian humanism um, within the context of the church, whether the church overall or the church that I'm part of? Uh, so that's that's what we're going to be looking at, Christian humanism for the good of the church. Well, great. Well, I'm sure our listeners will be looking forward to that. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at uh, thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Our website address is christianhumanist.org. Uh, our Twitter address is CH Radio Network. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. For David Grubbs and Matthew Block and the absent Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, Let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger. <laughs>